Welcome to Asking Hard Questions, a podcast for arts educators where we explore issues of cultural representation and appropriation. My name is Rachel Dwyer and I'm coming to you today from beautiful Gubby Gubby country. We want to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that cultural learning was one of the oldest ways of passing knowledge on country and has taken place here for thousands of years. We acknowledge any First Nations listeners with us today. And hello everyone, I'm Rachel Jacobs and I'm here on Gadigal land in the Eora Nation. Today on Asking Hard Questions, we are so privileged to have the amazing Candice Kruger with us. Candice Kruger is a Yongambeer woman and Yarrabul Gingung song woman. She's an educator, author, composer. She's founder and director of the Yongambeer Youth Choir. She has done so much work, a lifetime of work in education and also as a researcher, and she has just submitted her PhD. Woohoo! Candice's research captures the song woman's work and contributes to the development of Indigenous methodologies. She has worked on so many critical and amazing programs. For example, she co-composed as part of the Australian Music Examinations Board, that's the AMEB, online orchestra in 2021. Now, Candice, I actually grew up, of course, like many musicians, involved in the AMEB doing their exams and things like that. And it wasn't a particularly diverse organisation when I was growing up. So this is revolutionary and it's really meaningful for me as a student of music to know that this work is happening and it's really I'm really privileged to be talking to you as one of the leaders in that regard as well and of course Candice has taught classroom music at primary and secondary levels and has been a leader in our profession for over 25 years welcome Candice thank you for joining us Dingri hello thank you for having me Now, I'm going to start by actually asking you a little bit about terminology, and a lot of our listeners will be aware that there are many terms used, such as Indigenous, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, First Nations and things like that, and some people uh, often wonder what term that we should use. I'm going to quote another amazing uh, amazing Aboriginal arts educator who's Alethea Beetson, who's also from Queensland. And Alethea says, we acknowledge that the complexity of the English language is difficult in this regard, and that complexity comes from the fact that we're using colonizers' language, she says, to label us. Also, she acknowledges and says it has a liberal of temporality. And that means that words we use now might not be appropriate in the future and that some words might not be comfortable for everyone. So can I ask, how would you like to be referred to? Thank you so much for asking that question, actually, because most people never ask me that question. I usually have to actually, when I speak, position myself first in in whatever it is that I'm going to present at that time and say, I position myself as or I would like to prefer to be called. So I really appreciate being asked that. And I know that many other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people would also like to be asked that. So for educators out there who are listening, that is something that you certainly should ask. So for myself, I position myself as a Kumbamiri Nugi woman. So the Kumbamiri are the family group of Southport Narang region, uh, Nugi of Morton Island. That's in the Yugambeh language region. So if you hear Yugambeh, that's the Yugambeh language. It is also the people of that language. So both Yugambeh people, Yugambeh language are both correct. Um, so I'm a Kumbamiri 
Nugi woman of Yugambeh, I also don't prefer to call myself Indigenous and I don't prefer to call myself First Nations. That does raise some issues and some trauma for other Aboriginal people. I really don't mind calling myself a Guri woman. Guri is actually the word for Aboriginal in my heritage language. So some people might know that as Guri or Kuri or Murray. They might know it as Noongar. So those words are actually the word in language for Aboriginal. So I can say to you, I'm a Kumbumeri Nugi Guri woman. That was encapsulated so perfectly and summarised. Thanks, Candice. That is absolutely fascinating. And the heritage that comes with each of those terms, we really want to value. And we want to value you as well as a, as um, as an Aboriginal woman, as an artist and things like that. And I'd like to ask you a bit about what you're working on at the moment and what's really exciting for you. I think it's also important for our listeners just to acknowledge that before you ask someone to educate you, it is really important to acknowledge them as a, as a person, as somebody who's got rich language and heritage and culture and somebody who's working on really, really exciting things at the moment. So, Candice, you work on so many things what's going on at the moment so I'm a little multifaceted so yes certainly have been um, and and still am somewhat a classroom educator providing professional development having as you said worked in primary and secondary music I've also worked in Indigenous education having been a head of department of Indigenous education in Queensland as well I've just finished my PhD as you said but that was in Yarrabu Gireba singing Indigenous language alive and that really is not it's beyond the journey that I took for myself to actually learn Yugambeh songs and see who wanted to sing them. But this is a journey about getting educators in my region ready to actually understand and learn about the context of songs and have the cultural permissions ready in place for educators. Added to that, I now work for the University of New South Wales as a pedagogical lead for the Culturally Nourishing Schooling Program. And so I'm taking my skills on the road to go out to uh, a number of pilot schools in New South Wales and to work on embedding Indigenous perspectives, to work on pedagogies, to become an inclusive teacher and to get to know your community. Congratulations on your role at UNSW. It's a prestigious organisation, but Candice, I always think the best work in universities happens exactly like what you're saying when you're on the road and out in communities and taking it to schools. So that is so fantastic to see and I'll follow your projects closely. If you have any links, we might put them at the um, at the bottom of this podcast so people can look that up. And as you said, our role here is to bring educators along with us, which was what we're trying to do on this podcast. So this is for educators and for pre-service teachers as well. And something that I see often is that I have students commenting and saying, I want to be respectful and I don't want to cause offence. So I'd rather not engage in Aboriginal education in case I cause offence. I might just get a guest speaker in and they leave it at that. So that fear is actually becoming really paralysing for them, which we know is actually, I, I appreciate them trying to be respectful, but it's actually not right as well if we have a curriculum that doesn't include Aboriginal perspectives. So can you tell us a little bit about how how, how we can respond to those attitudes? Do you know, it's literally what put me on this journey in the first place. Um, in 2007, I, I had been around Australia with my husband's Air Force career and I, and I was the director of music and arts grammar for five years and I worked in South Australia for five years in, in amazing schools with boys' education. But it was um, when I came home to Queensland in 2007 that 
I had begun teaching uh, just at a festival once a year, um, like a few of the little songs that I had been that I'd been gathering since I was 24, and my grandfather and and his cousins put me on this journey. So, like you know, at the same time I'm building a music career, I was also building uh, a knowledge to become a song woman in community. These were like parallel um, things that were going on for me, and and pretty much alongside of my identity as well. What's the Aboriginal side? What's the Western side? How do these things build together to create the person that I am? So these knowledges have been coming along the way. But it was when I actually had songs and I was beginning to do a lot more um, and even Education Queensland and a number of the private schools were in there actually said to me, can you come and do some professional development for us? And other organisations did as well. So that was really fantastic. But I would do, I would teach songs exactly how they'd been taught to me in an oral way. And so I would sing them. People would say, can I video you? And say, yeah, sure. And then, you know, just go and teach that song. But then I realised that a number of educators came back to me and asked and said exactly what you've just said. Hey, I'm not comfortable doing that in my classroom because I wanted to know a little bit more about the permission or I did it in my classroom, but my students started asking me more questions. And so because I wasn't quite comfortable, I sort of didn't, I stopped doing it. But then I had other educators that said, wow, what more do you have? This was so powerful, but I'd still really like a little bit more information about the story. So that's the next step in my educational journey for myself in my lifelong learning, but also that drive to want to provide something for educators that um, is what I've done as part of my PhD. I've actually taken on board the fact that I have access to cultural knowledge. I have access to um, permissions and protocols, but as non-Indigenous people, you don't. So, and as educators, you don't. And it's not necessarily easy to go out to communities and find this for yourself because there are limited elders. There might be limited knowledge in this field. So not only am I piecing back together songs, I'm doing it for not just for educators, I'm doing it for the Yugambi Youth Choir too. We had two or three songs and then the kids went, well, what's next, Miss Candy? I want another song. So I had to find more songs for community as well. I had to understand and interpret language as well. My own language skills have, um, Yugambi language skills have developed considerably. I could literally host um, another podcast with you all about just the intricacies behind what makes an Aboriginal song, um, songs that are old. I also don't even talk in terms anymore of um, traditional and contemporary. We now just talk about Aboriginal music because we should be talking about living culture. So I've probably gone quite a roundabout around your question, but what's really important here is that educators need to understand that you need to take a step in. You need to have a go. You need to go and find people like me or you need to do the research for yourself. It may also be that you're looking more broadly and you're looking at a surface level. So begin to dig a bit deeper. Go and find out. I even say to a number of the educators that come and listen to um, and learn songs with me, I might even say, well, this is a counting song that I have written specifically to learn Yugambeh counting words, but you should be able to go and find the same uh, words that mean the number one or the number two in the language region that you're in. And so this might be from my perspective, but you can go and and find someone to help you in the community that you're in and you can step in. We shouldn't be afraid to step in. If we don't step in, we won't step in. Thank you so much for that, Candy. Um, I want to also talk about some of the practices that have perhaps happened in schools that really are less than optimal and sometimes contribute to that fear from teachers. With all the best intentions in the world, we've seen practice um, or ideas among pre-service teachers or practicing, um, practicing teachers where 
it hasn't been done well. And we've seen songs shared, there's work published um, uh, without permission, and teachers rely on those resources thinking they're trustworthy sources and then perhaps find out that they're not. What do you think good practice looks like when it comes to embedding Aboriginal perspectives in classrooms? Good practice is um, it doesn't have to be a whole lesson. And I think that people need to recognise that. It needs to be a small moment in time with genuine and authentic information. So, for example, you might have a song, you might have a poem, you might have a story that you're going to interpret in, in a dramatic dramatic way or in a dance. And just work with that piece of information that you have at that time. How do we know if it's authentic? How do we know if it's um, contextually going to work in our classroom? Well, we need to understand the narrative behind it, even if it's a narrative behind a song. We need to look at what it's telling you. Also, look in that publication. Where in that publication does it say that this was um, given freely by whichever Aboriginal group from around Australia as well? Or, you know, we would like this or the, the group endorses or um, the cultural group endorses this song to be sung in, in schools. And that's the, it might be the smallest amount, but it is a cultural permission that's been given to you and it may even be the protocol to follow we give permission for this to be sung in the context of a school so that's what you need to know if that if it states that then you obviously have the permission to go and do that at the time if it's a piece of music for example that just that tells you the story and it gives you the song but it doesn't actually give you any of those pieces of information that's where I would even myself tread lightly because I'd be wanting to go and speak to that community and say I'd not just like to know if I can sing this song and under what circumstances I can sing this song but also I'm not actually from here or, or this I found a song that's from two language groups over. It's not from my region. So why would I be singing that here? What does it bring? Perhaps what it does bring, so, for example, if you're singing one of my Yugambeh songs and you're um, singing a song about um, the um, Jingri Jingri, the Willy Wagtail, so the bird that's here, Jingri Jingri Jagun Yugambeh, the fact that we're singing the little tune that he makes. So if you're not too sure about it, you might actually, but you know that you've got permission to do that song, what you might do is go, well, that's the bird from that region. What's the bird from our region? So you're putting it into um, the hands of the students with knowledge. You're giving them knowledge that is from a particular region and then you're placing it in its context where it is there in Australia and then you're saying, so let's look at our local culture. Let's look at the knowledge that's around us here. So you can look broadly and then you can actually go more deeply. I absolutely love your suggestions, Candice, because they're so tangible and they are so meaningful as well and respectful, of course, ensuring that the ownership of that knowledge and that artefact remains in the hands of the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples from which it was from, but also situating our students in their locality, which is so, so, so important. What are some other boundaries that non-Aboriginal educators should be mindful of? Look, it's a little bit uh, difficult sometimes to actually um, state exactly what those boundaries are. But, you know, if we just talk about language for a moment, Aboriginal language, so it was an oral language. So when it was actually written down, it could have been written down by someone who was a French anthropologist who came to Australia. So in, in terms of how we phonetically wrote that down or he or she wrote that down, it, it's written with a French ear. Then you've got German, then you've got Polish, then you've got whoever else came to Australia at that point in time. So without this formalized 
this is how we're writing it down in English, we have multiple spellings of different words. That's not to say that it's wrong. It's just that um, what we should be looking to understand is that there perhaps isn't one right way to write a word. So, for example, I greeted you with jingery. Hello. So, jingery, I've seen it with two N's, two G's, two I's. None of them are wrong. What's important to learn is where I place the sound and the vowel placement as I say that word, you know, the jingery. The, the, the jing sound with the hard G that follows it on. And also, it's not wrong if you have jingiwalu because you're saying hello to everyone. So it's also understanding where it comes from. Look, I, I, it's a really interesting way to think about it when we think about our bird calls in our areas. So, you know, I'd, I'm probably not saying the right amount of numbers here, I'm, but I know that it's somewhere in the vicinity of about 185 suburbs are in the Gold Coast, Logan and Scenic Rim, which is Yugambeh language region. Half of them, 90 something of those suburbs are all Yugambeh words. And what we and people don't realize that hidden in plain sight, you're speaking Yugambeh when you're in this region. We all know Karawa, the beach at Broad Beach, it's deep blue sea. Um, some of the suburbs out the back, Ilanbar, that's the place of the bats. And we need to understand the 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 context of culture that is around us. So I throw that out as a challenge to you as well to the listeners. What suburbs are around you that you go, mm, really, that doesn't actually make sense. That really isn't an English word. It probably is an Aboriginal word. I wonder if I can find out what it means. I am now thirsty to find out more, just to do, go and do that research. I'm now eager just by listening to you, Candice. That's absolutely fascinating and things like that. Um, I also just want to pause, we're coming to the end of our podcast, to recognise that we recognise that there is diversity of views and opinions amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and cultural leaders. And we don't want to make you feel like you have to speak for everyone and we don't want you to carry the burden of educating us. And we try to encourage our educators to take on the work of educating themselves. One of my uh, personal kind of bugbears is when people say, oh, we were never taught this in school or, you know, we didn't learn anything like that in school. There are many failings of our education system and this is definitely one of them. There are also many triumphs in our education system, but it's all of our responsibility to educate ourselves. That, that doesn't end at school and as educators or pre-service teachers or members of the community, it, educating ourselves uh, about Aboriginal heritages is all of our work and it is ongoing. So some of the ways that I approach that are I do try to read as much as I can. I do try to do that research and that work. I try to be a consumer of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander arts myself, arts and culture and experiences. I do try to listen. Uh, there are some links and some documents that we're going to put up as well, particularly for our pre-service teachers, which gives us some guide on what kind of language um, that is appropriate to use and some terminology that is not appropriate, some uh, ways of doing the arts that are some clear guidelines of things that are not appropriate. So there is some pre-reading for our students to do. Rachel, can I ask you, go over to you, what are some ways that you do that work? Look, I just wanted to say how valuable I think that idea of cultural consumption of um, buying tickets, reading books, um, consuming cultural products by um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people has made such a difference for me. And it's something that um, I think a lot of teachers, what they're looking for is 
content for their classroom rather than thinking about their own worldview and how that could be expanded and enriched. So I just wanted to, to throw that in there. The other thing that I'd heard people um, say is that they were waiting for people to come to them, waiting for Aboriginal people to want to come into their school rather than seeking out connections with their community. Are there events that are on that are uh, there where um, non-Aboriginal people will be welcomed? Um, is there a way that your school can be of service to an Aboriginal organisation? Um, can you visit the Land Council office and just say hello, ask what they do there, have a chat to people? Um, so, and I think that so there are lots of things that people can do to take initiative rather than waiting for things to be handed to them, waiting for PD to come along. Candice, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to finish us off there? Yeah, Rachel, you just made an amazing point. So, you know, I want to throw it out there and say that the Queensland Academies for Health Science, one of the Queensland government schools for the last seven years has given me free hire of their school hall to run Yugambeh Youth Choir. This is something that this school determined that they could do. Now, initially, this was just uh, an an Aboriginal youth organisation looking to run a choir, and they said, here, use our um, hall on a Friday afternoon. Well, if we move seven years forward, that school has, uh, prior to COVID, of course, been able to take some of their students on tours to more remote Indigenous schools because kids are interested on their multicultural day our students go and perform their students come and perform for us it's opened up a much more um, engaged and rich community for that school because of the one thing that they did to begin with so all of a sudden I have an um, we have a, an engaged and an enriched um, relationship with Queensland Academy's Health Science, so much so that it's even where we launched the 2021 National Song for um, the Amy B Online Orchestra. We launched it at that song. And students and teachers came and actually watched that performance and that school had their orchestra perform as well. So if we just, if you just think about what can my school, what can I as an educator do for community? Who are the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students at my school? Who are the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander teachers? How can I make sure that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander teachers aren't having to carry the burden of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture the entire time? How can I also help? And once you do that, and I know that in my own experience, once teachers come to me and we work together, even sometimes I learn something new and it's just truly wonderful. And that idea that was brought up earlier about an enriched and engaged um, moving forward with your own education. Like I'm turning 50 this year and I've just only handed in my PhD and I've got 20 20 plus more years to go of my own education, of my own journey, of what legacy do I leave behind for educators, for Aboriginal people, for the people in my own community and where do we go from here? Keep moving, keep pushing forward for the people that are around you. Thank you so much, Candice, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time um, and look forward to hearing you if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Asking Hard Questions. Take care and we'll see you next time.